Okay, so that was David Bowie's Space Oddity that came out in 1969. It's personally one of my favorite songs that I was introduced to by my father. He's a really huge uh, classic rock junkie. But uh, anyway, here we go. Well, hi there. Uh, uh, First off, I wanted to go ahead and just apologize if I'm sounding nasally or stuffy or anything like that. I I apologize in advance, but uh, I've been struggling with a sinus infection that actually did (laughs) put me in a hospital uh, overnight, probably a couple days ago. I'm still not at 100% strength. But um, anyway, let's get the podcast started with uh, just introduce myself a little bit. Uh, My name is Connor Wise. I'm a senior here at Wingate University, and this is uh, my podcast final project for Dr. Stephen Hyland's Special Topics Cold War class. Uh, If you're uh, hearing this, Dr. Hyland, (laughs) I hope it's good. But uh, um, so... Uh, what I wanted to mostly talk about in this podcast is the space race. Now, the, the space race is just a, a kind of more fantastical, in, in my mind's eye, more fantastical uh, part of the Cold War. So uh, the Cold War is just basically uh, a uh, <clears throat> conflict between the U.S. and Russia that had been going on for about 50 years, half a century. You could probably still argue that it is going on to this day because of uh, the Russia investigation and their tampering with our presidential election. Uh, That's very subjective, but uh, I kind of wanted to talk about the space race and space policies because, well, when I was a child, uh, I was very interested in uh, space. Uh, My mind just kind of drew to the the moon missions, especially Apollo 11 and, you know, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and all those heroic American names uh, that you would likely hear uh, and being kind of interested in the um, the uh, <clears throat> the missions that were going on during the 90s and the early 2000s and, you know, getting to see, you know, some of the unfortunately some of the spaceships uh, blow up uh a, a mid-re-entry, uh, you know, I kind of grew up during that time, and um, <clears throat> so the space race is just a very interesting kind of uh, conflict. Uh, it it's it has some very very interesting origins though, um, but the space race begins around actually the 1930s, or at least its its origins do. So. Um, Back around World War II, and this relates kind of to Nazi Germany, um, they were building ballistic missiles and suborbital spaceflight uh, things. And uh, during the 1930s, uh, they were building uh, uh, liquid-fueled rockets, uh, so maybe with the hopes of one day uh, reaching high altitudes and traversing long distances. So um, <clears throat> there were a group of engineers and people who came together in the Nazi uh, regime. Uh, these were uh, Lieutenant Colonel Carl Emil Becker and Walter Dornberg. 
uh, they came out, they came together and figured out a way to use rockets as long-range artillery. And they were trying to get around the ban that was created by the Treaty of Versailles for creating uh, long-range cannons. And so they asked and brought in a young uh, engineering prodigy. His name was Werner von Braun, uh, and he came in and joined Becker and Dornberg uh, <clears throat> uh, to join their secret program in 1932, and uh, von Braun had these aspirations of conquering space without with with rockets, but he didn't see their military applications as necessary. So, <clears throat> so during the Second World War, Dornberg was a member of the military's army armies uh, the military's uh, rocket program, and so. Uh, <clears throat> Braun was uh, uh, the director of the ballistic missile program, and so what they managed to do here was uh, first they created the Aggregate 4, or the A-4 rocket, and it became the first vehicle ever to reach outer space uh, during its test flights in 1942 and 1943. But by 1943, Germany had produced something way better than what what's called the A4, and it's called the Vengeance Weapon 2, or the V2. Uh, so it was a ballistic missile that uh, the Nazis had created. Uh, <clears throat> it could go to a 200-mile range, carrying uh, 2,490 2, pounds of uh, ammunition, or it was a warhead of sorts, and it could go at 2,500 miles per hour. Uh, and because it was going at literally supersonic speeds, there could be no possible defense against it, and radars were not going to help in trying to uh, detect it. Uh, so there'd be little warning uh, if one of these V-2 missiles was coming uh, towards the Allied powers. So they, the Germans used this weapon against the Allied powers, and... Um, and they used it from 1944 to 1945 until the, well, the obvious end of the war and the surrender of the Germans. But the V-2 rocket became a part of the, the American and Soviet uh, space programs. Okay, sorry there. I kind of had to edit out some parts because I lost my train of thought. But uh, I'm back. So to continue what I was talking about, uh, so after the defeat of Germany in World War II, uh, the U.S., and I'm going to specifically be more talking about the U.S. space program, I think it'd take way too long to talk about the Russian side of the space race, but um, <clears throat> so via Operation Paperclip, most of the German rocket scientists, including von Braun, were brought into uh, the United States uh, programs that were beginning to be assembled after World War II. So um, <clears throat> now there had been someone uh, in America who, who had been creating solid-fueled rockets in uh, 1914, but it just seems that Von Braun was just the better uh, one. Uh, so this man was named Robert H. Goddard, and he was an American professor, and he created these solid-fueled rockets since 1914. Um, but he was not taken seriously by the public. Uh, I think the only demonstrations that he had were uh, during uh, 
before actually yeah before the uh, armistice that ended World War One. Uh, <clears throat> so um, yeah, he wasn't taken very seriously by the public as a scientist. But when von Braun was brought in, uh, he uh, he and his other team of scientists uh, they began assembling. Uh, captured v2 missiles uh by the americans and they also began instructing uh american uh engineers and scientists in how they operate so um <clears throat> so uh what happened here was uh uh von braun and his scientists were taken out to the white sands proving ground in new mexico in 1945 and so uh they uh created these uh two two-stage rockets called the WAC, WAC Corporal uh, V2 Combination. Uh, and these were uh, some of the first rockets that were able to go sub-orbit and take pictures in space. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, they were, the, the, the German rocket team led by Von Braun, they were moved to Fort Bliss uh, uh, <clears throat> to the Army's uh, Redstone Arsenal, uh, which was located in Huntsville, Alabama in 1950. Uh, so there, uh, Von Braun and his scientists, they began to create the Army's first uh, uh, medium-range ballistic missile, and it was called the Redstone Rocket. And this would be the basis for um, <clears throat> the Americans Jupiter and Saturn rockets uh, that were created a little bit later. Uh, so I'm going to skip a little bit over uh, the the Russian stuff because I just think would be all we'd be here all day if we talked about uh, the Russian program. But if uh, if you would like me to do a, a Soviet uh, history lesson on its uh, program, then I'd be more than happy to do that. But uh, here we go anyway. Um, so uh, <clears throat> in 1955. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, they began building these uh, ballistic missiles that could launch objects into space. So this was the official beginnings of the space race. Uh, so um, <clears throat> uh, in separate announcements between uh, each other, probably like four days apart actually, um, both the United States and Russia announced that they would be sending out uh, uh, Earth-based satellites from 1957 to 1958. So uh, what happened here was uh, James C. Haggerty, uh, who was President Eisenhower's uh, press secretary, he announced that the United States had intended to launch uh, small Earth-circling satellites uh, between uh, July 1st, 1957 and December 31st, 1958. Uh, <clears throat> and so what happened four days later, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the Soviets, they uh, would intend to launch uh, satellites as well. Uh, so that's kind of interesting how that happened. But uh, so one of the biggest concerns that President Eisenhower was is that um, 
if these satellites were launched into space by the Americans and they passed above a nation uh, from about 62 miles up, uh, they might be considered violating a nation's uh, sovereign airspace uh, and that the Soviets would misconstru misconstrue this as uh, a crime of some sorts. Uh, now, at this time, um, there was something called uh, the Karman Line. Uh, so the Karman line uh, is uh, basically a boundary between the Earth's atmosphere and outer space. So that's about 330,000 feet uh, above sea level. And uh, that was acknowledged at the time between 1957 and 1958. Uh, <clears throat> and it was established as a principal international law. So he kind of feared, of course, that... You know, uh, uh, if this uh, satellite went over Russian airspace, then it would be considered a crime and thus uh, a possible war could be set off. Um, <clears throat> so uh, let's see. Uh, let me skip through here. Uh, my script's kind of long. Uh, so, but somehow, somehow... Uh, on Friday, October 4th, 1957, and you've heard of this one before, at uh, almost 10.30 p.m. Moscow time, uh, the Russians were able to beat the United States to the punch um, when they launched uh, Sputnik 1. Um, <clears throat> and so um, the, the, the satellite itself was about two feet in diameter. It weighed less than 200 pounds, uh, but, um, <laughs> and, uh, but you can probably still remember the distinctive beeps, um, that were occurring, uh, when it was sending signals from outer space. So, uh, and this raised a huge deal of concern for the United States. And I wanted to put a, a quote here from Bernard Baruch. Uh, he was a uh, an economist, and this is his quote from an article in the New York Herald Tribune. He said, while we devote our industrial and technological power to producing new model automobiles and more gadgets, the Soviet Union is conquering space. It is Russia, not the United States, who has had the imagination to hitch its wagon to the stars and the skill to reach for the moon and all but the and all but grasp it. America is worried, and it should be. Um, <clears throat> so when this happened, um, Eisenhower, uh, President Eisenhower had uh, tried to move its timetable for the launch of its satellites up. And so the um, what this program was called was Project Vanguard. And so on December 6, 1957, uh, a few months after the launch of Sputnik, uh, uh, the Project Vanguard launch was a huge, huge failure. In front of uh, millions of people on TV, uh, the, the launch was a failure. A few seconds after launch, the, the rocket itself exploded and the, uh, the program, the Project uh, Vanguard became a huge international joke. Um, <laughs> and, uh, there were some jokey names, uh, that, that the Project Vanguard failure were called, like, and these are literal, uh, joke names that went around, uh, Flopnik, Stayputnik, 
Kaputnik and Dudnik. I just think those are really funny. Okay, and we're back again. I had to edit out some parts because my <laughs> my tongue got twisted and I just kind of uh, fell into a little bit of a silent period. I just uh, couldn't talk for some reason. So, okay, but we're back and uh, let's continue talking a little bit. Uh, so <clears throat> after Project Vanguard's huge failure, uh, a couple months later, uh, in January of 1958, Von Braun and his team, who may I remind you, who are over in Alabama, um, creating the Redstone missile, they come to Cape Canaveral and they launch the first successful satellites using the Juno 1 rocket uh, that they created and the satellite that was inside it was called the Explorer one. And, uh, the man who created it was named, uh, Dr. James Van Allen. And he was a scientist from the university of Iowa. Uh, they originally created the satellite to, uh, uh, to find something called, uh, uh, a theorized radiation belt, which is now called the Van Allen, uh, radiation belt. So it's, uh, it's uh, mostly just made of particles uh, that come from solar wind and other particles by cosmic rays. Uh, uh, so the magnetic field of the Earth uh, traps these uh, rays and solar wind uh, and deflects them uh, to protect the, uh, the Earth's atmosphere from destruction. So the, the Explorer one was just used to, uh, prove, uh, Van Allen's theory. And so, well, the, the rays are now named, uh, the radiation belts, excuse me, is now named after Van Allen himself. So, um, <clears throat> so with the Soviet space lead with Sputnik, uh, President Eisenhower uh, had recommended to the Congress that uh, they create a civilian agency to direct non-military space activities. And so led by the Senate majority and later uh, President of the United States, Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, the Congress passed the uh, National Aeronautics and Space Act, which turned the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics to NASA, which we now know as the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, which is still going on today. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> uh, in 1959, Eisenhower approved the transfer of Army's remaining space-related activities to NASA, and so uh, the Redstone Arsenal that uh, Von Braun and his team had created uh, became the George C. Marshall Space Flight Center, uh, and Von Braun became its first director. And so the Saturn family of rockets had begun to be created. So um, I'm going to skip here a little bit with uh, – I'm going to go past a little bit of the uncrewed, uncrewed loner probes and go to some of the first men who are actually make it able to make it into space uh you may be familiar with uh yuri yuri gargan uh gagargan and uh so he was actually the first man in space he was called a cosmonaut uh so that's a combination of russian and greek and it's it means sailor of the universe uh 
that's just very cheesy, but he was able to orbit, sing, do a single orbit around the Earth, and the craft called the Vostok 1, and so um, <clears throat> he orbited the Earth for about 108 minutes and made his re-entry into the Soviet Union, uh, so uh, he became a huge hero in the Soviet Union and in the Eastern Bloc, and he was considered a worldwide <laughs> sorry, excuse me, a celebrity, and so, um, yeah, he, he became a huge hero, uh, there, and, uh, so, but the, the U.S., uh, they were able to respond and put Alan Shepard, uh, uh, into space, uh, through, uh, the, Mer the Mercury Redstone 3, uh, <coughs> uh, so, um, but unfortunately, uh, while they did put him in space, that he was the first American in space, um, uh, and he did not achieve the similar orbit that Gargan did, he was the first person ever to manually control his spacecraft, spacecraft's at, uh, at attitude and retro rocket firing. So, uh, when he, uh, um, returned, uh, uh, back to the earth, he was distinguished as a hero. And, uh, even president at the time, president John F. Kennedy had awarded him a, uh, service medal. Uh, so, uh, this is where hands change. Eisenhower is outed and, uh, Kennedy is brought in as president. And, uh, <clears throat> so, Early during Kennedy's administration, uh, as you know, uh, the planned Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba uh, was happening, and it was a disastrous failure for his administration, uh, and it was a huge embarrassment. So, uh, th because they were trying to out uh, Castro, and they had fears that uh, the Cubans had ballistic missiles over there, uh, brought to them by the Soviets, and well, it didn't go so well. <laughs> so, um, uh, so to save face and to give his administration a little bit of positive plus publicity, uh, um, he urged Congress uh, to uh, start looking at um, moon landings. Uh, so... Uh, that's basically uh, the start of the race towards the moon. And this is his uh, message uh, to his urgent message to Congress, or at least part of it. And this is his quote. He says, these are extraordinary times and we face an extraordinary challenge. Our strength, as well as our convictions, have imposed upon this nation the role of leader in freedom's cause. If we are to win the battle that is now going on around the world between freedom and tyranny, the dramatic achievements in space which occurred in recent weeks should have made clear to us all as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. Now it is time to take longer strides, time for a new great American enterprise, uh, time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement. 
which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. Recognizing the head start obtained by the with Soviets with their large rocket engines, which gives them many months of lead time, and recognizing the likelihood that they will exploit this lead for some time to come in still more impressive successes, we nevertheless are required to make new efforts on our own. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, that <laughs> was a mouthful, but that was the beginning of what's called the moon race. Uh, so this was the second phase of the space race. No longer are we just going suborbital or orbital. We're going to the moon, according to John F. Kennedy. So, um, <clears throat> uh, let's see here. Uh, so we begin kind of with the Apollo missions, uh, and there were some successes, some failures, but I think what everybody's more familiar with uh, is the Apollo 11 landing. Uh, uh, so the Apollo 11, uh, its goal was landing in July uh, in uh, 1969 on the Sea of Tranquility. The Sea of Tranquility uh, is uh, it's uh, a lunar basin that's on the moon. So uh, uh, it's a very famous area there on the moon. And so, uh, the team consisted of these famous names, Neil Armstrong and Michael Collins and, uh, Buzz Aldrin. And so, uh, uh, on July 16th, 1969, at 9.32 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, the Saturn V rocket launched from the Sp Kennedy Space Center, uh, Complex 39 in Florida and, uh, uh, so they actually managed to make it to the moon. And as you remember Neil Armstrong's famous words, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And so uh, with this, uh, the race kind of started winding down as the years went on. Um, and uh, uh, Russia and the United States during the... 80s and the 90s uh, kind of started having uh, better relations, uh, if I may say so. Uh, uh, they're, they weren't as tension-filled as they were in previous years. Uh, uh, Reagan and uh, went over and uh, helped with the effort of tearing down uh, the blockade between uh, East and West Germany, and that was a pretty significant moment in our history. But um, I kind of wanted to also talk about space policy and how the the race kind of informed uh, what the uh, uh, the space policy that we have is now. And uh, so, one of the first formal treaties that. Uh, uh, a lot of nations had started signing as of now, uh, uh, and this was brought up in the United States, uh, I mean, the United Nations General Assembly. Um, <clears throat> uh, this, this treaty is called the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States and the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. We don't talk much about outer space treaties or policies or laws. Uh, they just don't really... Uh, come to mind because we are so focused on uh, 
uh, <laughs> well, Earth and what goes on here and me being kind of, you know, very interested in space. It's kind of interesting to look at space policy and what nations have formed, uh, what kind of uh, laws or practices that are in space policy. I've never really actually looked at them myself. And I think uh, it'd be very interesting for people to just kind of like sit down and read through this because it's actually really cool. Uh, so the space treaty, the, the Outer Space Treaty for short, it was formed uh, between the United States, the United Kingdom and Soviet Union on uh, the 27th of January in uh, 1967. And since October 2018, uh, 107 countries um, have uh, signed the treaty and have uh, ratified it, uh, but 23 others have signed it but not completely ratified it. Uh, so... Um, <clears throat> That's interesting. Uh, let's see. Uh, okay, so here are some of the just the key points uh, that the Outer Space Treaty uh, talks about in its legal framework. So um, let's see. Among its uh, policies, so it bars uh, states from placing weapons of mass destruction in Earth orbit or installing them on the moon or any really any other celestial body um, or stationing them in outer space. Uh, it also limits the use of the moon and other celestial bodies to uh, to only peaceful uh, purposes, and there should be no testing weapons of any kind or conducting military maneuvers or establishing military bases or installations uh, uh, on any on any place in any celestial body or any moon. Uh, so, however. The treaty actually doesn't prohibit the placement of weapons in orbit. Uh, so, uh, so the, the 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 possibility of kinetic bombardment weapons are still somehow allowed. So that's kind of a loophole in the the law. Um, so, and it states that uh, space exploration will be done to bring benefit to all countries, and that. Uh, uh, space shall be free for exploration for all states, uh, and it strictly forbids that uh, any government government could make claim to uh, a celestial resource such as the moon or a planet. Um, and so it says here in Article 2, outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national pro appropriation. Uh, by claim of sovereignty, by means or use of occupation, or by any other means. However, the states that launch the space objects retains jurisdiction and control over the object, and the state is also liable for the damage caused by the space object itself. So, um, let's see. Uh, there's also the Moon Treaty, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, this one was uh, signed in 1979. Uh, and, uh, uh, there have been five ratifications of it and 11 signatures. Uh, and so, um, most of the provisions here, uh, as a follow-up to the Outer Space Treaty, which I talked about before, um, so, 
the treaty makes declarations specifically about the moon and that it should be used for the benefits of all states and all peoples within the human race and the international community. Uh, so, and it, it, it expresses specifically a desire to prevent the moon from becoming a source of international conflict. And so here are the more specifics uh, that talks about, you know, laws about the moon. So it bans, again, any military use of any kind or testing weapons or uh, making military bases on the moon. And it bans any exploration uh, without the approval of uh, other states uh, on the uh, common heritage of mankind. Um, and so it also requires that all states have the equal right to conduct research on all celestial bodies, including the moon, and uh, um, that it declares that any samples obtained from the moon during research activities, uh, the, that those samples that are obtained, uh, that it must be made available to all countries and scientific communities for research. And it specifically also bans uh, altering the environment of the moon or any other celestial bodies. Uh, and that the states themselves must take, must take huge steps to preventing, uh, the contamination and destruction of those, uh, bodies, including the moon. Uh, and that it also bans any state from claiming any celestial bodies whatsoever. And, uh, uh, and it bans ownership of any extraterrestrial property unless it's authorized by, uh, 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 the an organization that's international, uh, so um, uh, it was finalized in 1979, and as of 2018, only surprisingly, 18 states uh, have actually signed uh, this uh, law, and um, but surprisingly, some of the big countries are actually non-parties to this agreement, including the United States, Russia, and um, uh, Indonesia, China, uh, Japan. Uh, that's really surprising to me, actually. So uh, um, they were never really uh, ratified in the United States Senate uh, and never became law, according to uh, the United States itself. So, uh, space, uh, laws and treaties are just very interesting to talk about. And, uh, I just think that as a whole, the space race is probably one of the most interesting things that, you know, I've gotten to talk about or have gotten to be a part of or gotten to experience as a kid. I remember going down to Cape Canaveral when I was a kid and seeing the launch sites and seeing the history and actually seeing a split apart Saturn rocket in this huge hangar bay. Uh, and I just remember feeling nostalgic and hopefully one day wanting to go to space myself. Uh, I think uh, my perspective has changed. I think I'd rather stay on the ground, but space is just so interesting. And um, I continue to hope that uh, the space race and exploring space itself, 
uh, is continued peacefully and that there are no uh, conflicts or militaristic aims towards conquering parts of space or any other celestial bodies. But just uh, I, I thought this would be an interesting way to talk about the space race as a whole as a part of the Cold War. And um, yeah, so um, I'd like to thank you for allowing me to spend a little bit of time with you talking about the space race and space policies themselves. And uh, so this will be Connor Wise signing off. Thank you and have a good night.